Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I stream murdery thingy thingy thingy. What? Do, do, do you recognize that? No, what is that? Do, 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 do. In Nintendo Mario 64, in the, like, beginning, when you would be at, like, Peach's Castle. Uh-huh. And it was, like, the main menu. That's the song that would play. Oh, okay. Do, 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 Oh, yeah. I do, do recognize that do, now. Do, 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 do. Dun-dun-dun-dun. dun dun da 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 Sanford and Son was filmed before a live studio audience. What did uh, the Super Mario like to wear? Huh? What did Super Mario like Me? to wear? Or Super, Super Mario? Mario. What did he like Overalls? to wear? Overalls? Denim, denim, denim. Oh, <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Mystery. Welcome to Wednesday. We were watching oh, more yeah. Vines. We were watching Vines yesterday. Now, now you understand where I get Mary Chrysler. If you guys are not steeped in Vine culture as I was not, you know, before... <laughs> I started going out with the Steeped. fine Chloe here. Um, I did not know what that was, nor had I ever seen it. But if you go on YouTube and look up Spider-Man Welcome to Wednesday, Vine, you will find what we refer to. And he, we decided, is our mascot. It's so Wednesday, my dudes. It's Wednesday, my dudes. But um, Welcome to Wednesday. Welcome to Mystery yeah, Murder. Vine thingy. is no longer a thing, so there's all these True. like Vine compilations on YouTube. And what's his name? Weirdly died. That's weird shit in the news. Speaking of weird, oh, just looking for our weird shit in the news. The co-owner of Vine. The former co-owner of the Vine. The former yeah. co-owner of Vine. Right. And the guy who 
made HQ Trivia HQ died trivia, of a drug exactly. overdose, right? Oh, I it think was a drug overdose? I'm pretty sure it was a drug overdose. When I had not, I had only seen it, like, right when it happened, and the, they weren't, like, releasing the cause of death. So I have no idea what it was, but that would make sense. I we mean, can, in terms yeah. of the circumstance, but... Anyway, um, so, yeah. Um, I'm Chloe. I'm Mario. This is... I said, I said mystery, oh, mystery, mystery murdery thingy, thingy, where we do mysteries and murderies and thingies. Cool. And yeah, um, mine this week, it's, it's like, eee, I'm excited. it's, <laughs> it's actually three mysteries. What? In one. What? Bum, bum, bum. What? Um, I feel like I should go first just cause mine is going to be shorter. Yeah. Mine's going to be a long one. Okay, cool. A well, in my opinion, it's it's long for me. Some of mine are kind of sure. short. Long form. What was that website that you just, you just showed okay, me? Okay, I recommend this to everybody. Yeah. Longform.org has just tons of long form articles. It's really and cool. And there's like a true crime section. If you're a fucking nerd like we are. On here mean? on If you're part of the nerdy team mystery over here, so go to longform.org and uh, yeah, there's some That was good a really there. great high five. That was a pretty good one. I like that. So, okay, so... Mine is the three big mysteries of the Japanese National Railway. So, okay, in late June, early July... What does this mean? 1949, the just-established National Railway of Japan, the Japanese National Railway, was rocked by three big, tragic mysteries, all within, like three weeks of each other. So in all, 10 people would die. What? At the end of the the series of mysteries that I'm going to detail. 10 people will die. 10 people are going to die. It's it's sad. When did this happen again? (laughs) 1949. Okay. So this is Japan just after World World War War II. World War II, yeah. Yes. So obviously, we all know our World War II history. Japan, part of the Axis, right? Allies defeat the Axis, uh, Japan gets crushed, including with obviously two nuclear bombs from yeah. our own country. That's a different story. The moral implications, all of that, we're going to leave that aside. So at this point, that's all happened, right? Japan, it's in tatters. It, it's, uh, um, you know, just, yeah, re- the, the economy is, is just like laid bare, right? Yeah. And we're talking like 1946, 1947 here, right? So a couple of years before when this happened. And... The United States, right, and the Allied powers, they realize, right, in the midst of the Cold... We've been talking about the Cold War, like, every fucking week on this podcast. But, yep. like, I know, it's, it's, it's oddly salient in, this, in this, these times as well. Since we're in a second Cold War, let's just say it, um, whatever, uh, that, you know... But, but at this yeah. point, right, the, the Americans, the British, whomever, they were afraid Japan was going to go the way of Cuba was... Again, they didn't want another Cuba, just like in fucking, you know, Indonesia... They didn't want another Cuba. So they thought, okay, we can't let Japan, like, slip toward communism. We have to make it super capitalist. We have to build it up. We have to make everybody rich and prosperous so that um, it won't turn toward communism. Right? So, you know, part of that was this kind of, like, reconstruction, revitalization plan. Right? Um, And part of that plan was the construction of a national railway. 
So that's where we get to the oh, Japanese National Railway. Okay, that you, okay. Now you see where I'm actually going somewhere. I'm not just, like, spouting off about history. It actually <laughs> ties back into the fucking story that I'm telling this week. <laughs> so while the railway itself was nominally run by a Japanese uh, man, right, the first president, Sadanori Shimayama, the real control, the, the power behind Shimayama was exerted by the occupying force, by the Americans, and specifically in the person of an American banker named Joseph Dodge. And Joseph Dodge, in, he, he instituted this thing that came to be known as the Dodge Line, which was a regime of fiscal austerity measures that involved, you know, just like a, a lot of tightening the belt kind of things, right? What does that, what is fiscal austerity? Sure. Real, just super fucking quick. Fiscal austerity, higher taxes, lower spending. Okay. Okay. Basically, that's what it is. And in um, terms of the National Railway, what that meant was tons and tons of layoffs. Eventually, oh. almost 100,000 Japanese National Railway workers were laid off oh in, in, in a few round, round of, rounds of layoffs. The first round of layoffs was on July 4th, 1949, uh. ironically enough, of course, doesn't mean bubkis to the Japanese, Japanese right? Well, I mean, I'm sure they were aware, but you know, they don't. I'm not sure they would care that much. Thirty thousand uh, or so people were laid off from from the Japanese National Railway on Damn. that day, and while the decision to lay off all of the tens of thousands of Japanese were w- was made by by jo- uh, Dodge by Joseph Dodge, uh, the burden of actually carrying out the uh, massive layoff mm, and, and of telling the JNR employees was, of yeah. course, on the, the back of Shimayama, of Sadanori Shimayama. So um, here's where the mystery comes in. About 24 hours after announcing that round of layoffs, Shimayama is found dead on a lonely stretch of railroad tracks, <gasps> his body having been apparently cleaven uh, in two by a passing... Uh, locomotive. Yes. Oh so this is where we find ourselves, right? Uh, on uh, the very late night, about 1230 a.m., July 6th, you know, Sadanori Shimiyama having been killed by this by this train. But let's back up just a little bit. Um, let me just say, by way of introduction to the actual mysteries, that these this is the first of the three mysteries, of course, and is known as the Shimiyama Incident. Um, and here's kind of what we know about what happened to Sadanori Shimiyama on July 5th, what, what kind of came out of the investigation. So July 5th, 1949, obviously this is the day after the huge layoffs, um, Shimiyama, uh, talks to his, um, you know, people over at JNR, tells them, hey, you know, I'm going to be in, there's a big meeting at nine o'clock about everything that was that was mm-hmm. going on, right? It's a, a big day. Okay. And um, Shimayama was picked up by his driver at about 8.20 a.m., as he normally would have been, you know, from his home there in, in Tokyo, uh, the capital of Japan. So he tells his driver, though, to stop at this department store called Mitsukoshi on his way to work. The store was not open yet. So they go to the bank. They sort of drive around for a while, is they this like go normal? back to Mitsukoshi. This is very, very abnormal. 
by this time it's 9.37 a.m. And, and he's we, late for the meeting. Yes. And we know that it's 9.37 a.m. very specifically because he's caught, of course, on, um, you know, video seen, seen oh, by people. Oh, okay. okay. I don't know if they would have necessarily had video at that time. And I, that obviously they wouldn't have. I don't, I don't know why I said that. I'm not going to edit this, so it's going to stay in there. <laughs> Whatever. How do we know them? By accounts of what people said? Huh? Yes, the he was seen by many people. Okay, inside of the store and afterwards, who he was not seen by, however, was his driver. He never came out again. His driver what? never saw him alive. Wait, what? Wait. So when did he? What? Nine, I'm so confused. Okay, okay, go back. Nine thirty-seven a.m., July fifth. He tells his driver to go to this store, right? This, like, department store. Oh, he's store. not with his driver. He was, and then he goes into the store, not with his driver. He leaves the driver outside. Okay. Driver's in the, the car. Store. Okay. Driver's chilling. All right. Listening to some tunes. Cool. Some nice American radio, I would imagine. It's probably They were probably playing a lot of, like, like Elvis. Like a lot of propaganda over there. A, they were probably playing a lot of propaganda, too, sure. Um, but, yeah, he goes into the store. His driver's in the car. He's like, hey... I'll be back in about five minutes, and he just never comes out again. And no one knows where, what happened, really, in the interim between that and 12.30 a.m. July 6th, right? Some whatever, you know, 12-plus hours later, oh 15 hours later, he's found on the railroad tracks dead. Like I said, cleaving in two. Um, not to make light of it, you know, oh obviously. Oh, that's crazy. Um, I thought you meant, like, the driver, like, drove around for a while or something. He did until they went back to the store because it was closed. So they were kind of, like, wasting time until oh, it opened again. Oh, okay, okay. Although, why he wasn't at the meeting, like you were saying earlier, and why he didn't just go to work, I mean, obviously, you know, he was, like, avoiding what was coming, right? Yeah. I mean, that seems, obviously, we don't know. I'm saying obviously a bunch of times. But that seems clear, that he was, like, avoiding work because it's super uncomfortable. Yeah, he doesn't want to be there. Yeah. He was kind of worried. I've got to fire all these people. But there are all these people who are at the meeting that he's supposed to be at. Waiting. That now not only are they dealing with this horrible situation with 30,000 people having just been laid off, but they're like, where's Satanori, you know? And they contact the police. The police immediately start investigating um, and Don't just you mean Shamayama? Well, Sadanori is his first name. Oh, wait, did I say that right? Yes, Shumayama. Shumayama. I mean, you know, as close as you're going to get, I guess. Or I'm going to get. So, yes, about 12.30 a.m., his um, dismembered body found on the Joban line of... Um, of the, the, you know, the tracks, the JNR tracks. So while police were able to find several witnesses, like I said, who saw Shimiyama throughout the day, they were never able to really say definitively what happened to him or, or really have any great idea of, of what happened. Basically, yeah. the trail runs cold at this point. Until it's they not, find him. Oh, no, sorry. I'm just Keep saying going. after the body was found. Okay. Right, right. They, they don't really know. Even to the point of, was this murder or was it suicide? That becomes the big question, mm. and there are different ideas. But it's, you said he was, like, in two? Well, he had been hit by the train. Oh, okay. I right. was picturing that he was, like, laying down on the tracks, and it, like, ran over him. Maybe. Or maybe his dead body was thrown onto the tracks. Oh. Or maybe he ran onto thing. the tracks. I mean, who knows, right? But... 
either either is uh, is a plausible you know outcome. Um, and the two um, reports that came out in terms of the autopsies, autopsies that happened pointed in different directions. So there was a medical examiner named uh, Shinosuke uh, Yasushima who created a report kind of initially from from a, a sort of initial autopsy that seemed to suggest suicide. However, the official report that ended up coming out stated that Shimiyama had died before being struck by the train. So which one is true? Do we know? I mean, who's really to say? But it seems like the second one was more definitive, perhaps. The first one maybe was too cursory. I'm not totally sure. But it, it's it, that's the mystery, right? This, this is essentially where, the, what, where this mystery sort of um, resides in, in this whole question of what exactly happened in, in that time, like right before his death. And many, many uh, hypotheses, obviously, you know, came about throughout the years. Some of these suggest foul play, of course. Yeah. Um, the main theories in that direction center around disgruntled fired workers, of course. You know, that seems like, <laughs> well, just laid off 30,000 people. There's yeah. 30,000 people and more. their families who have a motive now, right? Yeah. And supposed, quote, leftist radicals out for revenge or less plausibly, quote, American agent provocateurs wanting to discredit the communist movement. Okay. So, they're, they're, okay. again, was it a false flag? We, we've talked about false flag operations yes. before. Was it a false flag operation? Some people think maybe it was a false flag operation by the Japanese government itself. But other people think it was maybe done by the Japanese Communist Party. So it's, again, not not known at all. So that's pretty high-profile murder right there. Oh, yeah. Hugely. He, he was a former minister of transportation in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and, like I said, the first president of the Japanese National Railway. So, yeah. And the statute of limitations, which apparently there is a statute of limitations on murder in Japan, at least at that point, I guess, ran out in 1964. So I guess the police kind of stopped looking at that point, I'm assuming. Was there any confession? No. No, no nothing's ever come out about it. Um, and whatever, you know, led, led to Shimayama's death, um, uh, according to this Tokyo Weekender article that I got a lot of my info from, this incident did have the effect of discrediting leftists in post-war Japan and also fomenting anti-U.S. sentiment. So, like I talked about, there were those kind of main theories, right? Was, was it the yeah. leftists or was it some sort of false flag operation by the yeah, Americans? Yeah. Um, people definitely bought into that sort of, um, mo- you know, moving forward in time. Because these are still, like, pretty, as I'll get to at the end, th- these seem to be fairly salient still in Japan, which I'd be interested to know, actually, if, if like, I don't know, we, we don't get many listeners from Japan, but if you're listening to this in Japan, like, Email us, mysterymurderythingy at gmail.com. Have you heard about this before? Let us know. So the second mystery, okay, is what's called the um, the uh, Mitaka derailment. Oh, no. Yeah. This sounds deadly. Very, very tragic. Um, this is the highest death count of, of the three that I'm going to talk about. And this is an incident that happened just two weeks after Shimiyama's um, oh mangled God. corpse was discovered on the Tokyo rail lines. So you imagine that, you know, that's in the news. Two weeks later, on the evening of July 15th, a large passenger train with no one in it 
ran into Mitaka Station. The, you know, sort of levers had been placed down and sort of roped off or whatever. Okay. And whoever started it up had booked it off the train, and it was just hurtling towards a station where people were. So essentially this was a, you know, runaway train going into the station. You can think of it sort of as a, you know, uh, uh, a bonsai attack, right, but with a train. Oh, my God. That's essentially what this is. It killed six people. Oh, my God. And injured 20. And the pictures of this are disturbing. I mean, not a, they don't have pictures of the bodies or anything, but just of the train, like, afterwards, you know, sitting there mangled, you know, with the building all broken up. It's, yeah, it, it would have been, I mean, if you've ever seen footage, because uh, this happened in the U.S. a couple of years ago, um, you know, one of these incidents where a train runs into the station, it is devastating and, and horrifying. And this came the same week as the further firing of 63,000, 63,000 people from the Japanese National Railway. So it was after another round of Another round (gasps) that was twice as big. Oh, my God. Right? So this clearly was an act of sabotage, obviously. Because the ropes were tied down? Yeah, I mean... this couldn't, it's not like a circumstance that would have happened any other way, yeah. but somebody intentionally did this. Um, dastardly of... deed. I know. And presumably it would have been linked to the firings, although no one is but really to say, right? So the police um, suspected right off members of the National Railway Workers Union, again, linking it to the firings. Nine members of that union and one non member were arrested and charged with. Uh, the deadly sabotage. Now, while that one non-member of of the union who was the conductor of the train, uh, Kaisuke Takuchi, confessed to doing this, it appears that that was a case of forced confession. Did he not know any details or what? I'll kind of get into the evidence for that. But just as a kind of... if. The concept of forced confession, right? This is a thing that happens. I, f- I feel like we always, you always have to say this whenever this comes up. This is a thing that happens. <laughs> this is a legitimate thing. Yes. If, if, if you think, oh, why would someone ever confess to something that they didn't do? Well, people do it all the time. It happens surprisingly often. And a lot of times it's because of the same reasons why Taguchi did. Because the Japanese police were... You know, just he was, it it said in one of my sources, driven by prolonged and coercive interrogations by the prosecutors. Oh, okay. The police at this time were known to use coercive, you know, to the point of maybe even torturous techniques to elicit confessions from the people they wanted to confess. Not the only time or place in which that's ever occurred. Another example would be modern day America the place in which we live and the time in which we live <laughs> where this happens all the, all the time in the United States. <laughs> so, you know, Hey, uh, but it happens in a lot of countries it throughout a lot of times, including right now. And apparently this was the case with, with Kasuke Takuchi, um, a third party. I guess this was a person who's, you know, they didn't want to reveal his identity, but he gave an alibi to Kasuke Takuchi 
apparently he was at a J&R communal bath, you know, kind of like a bathhouse um, at the time that the incident occurred. And Takuchi's lawyer also came forward in 2010 sort of charging that, you know, that the police had, had, uh, had done a, had coerced him into the, into the confession. In 1955, Takuchi was sentenced to death by hanging. The other nine of the, um, defendants were acquitted. What? Right. So clearly they, they didn't have that much evidence, right? The only thing that they were going on so essentially not, was so Takuji's confession. So, like, we know, but we don't know? We know that we don't know too much. Just like with all three of these mysteries, kind of. There's, yeah. There's a, a, there's a lot of questions. A still. lot of questions. There's not that much to go on. Not that much evidence. So, with that lack of evidence, the police wanting to obviously have someone, yeah. you know, to be able to pin this on. Uh Takuchi, it should be also said, recanted his confession fairly soon afterwards. Yep. Maintained his innocence throughout his life. Yep. Uh, he did not end up dying by hanging. Uh, he actually died of a brain tumor in, in prison in 1967. Aww. So about 12 years after his his um, sentencing. Wow. So, yeah. Um, and as of uh, the writing of that Tokyo Weekender article, which I think was 2009 or something... Um, his son was still trying to get a retrial uh, posthumously oh, no. for his father. So, yeah, they're, 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 like, still trying to sort it out maybe, actually. Okay, third and final mystery. Okay, so uh, this is the Matsukawa derailment. Okay. Another one? Um, so this is a little bit different. So 3.09 a.m. on August 17th, 1949. Okay, so this is... Um, you know, whatever, Same about a, about a month later, okay. three weeks later. Oh, wow. These all happened within about a month of each other. Okay. So a passenger train derailed and overturned the, the, um, the locomotive overturned, you understand? Yeah. Um, the, the, the actual passenger cars themselves, however, were also derailed between, uh, Kaneyagawa and Matsukawa stations and three crew members died. And eight passengers were injured oh in, in this particular incident. So this is where we're getting up to the figure of ten deaths, right? Three yeah. here, six from the train running into the station, and obviously Sadanori Shimiyama. Sadanori Shimiyama, you know, the, the first one, the, the president of JNR who had just died. And um, again, the police targeted JNR union activists. Um, were they, wait, why? J- just because that was the assumption. They were just like, if, if anyone did this, it was going to be the unionists, the leftists. They're connected probably to the JCP, the Japanese Communist Party. You know, they must have done it. You know what? It must be them. So let's, you know, round up the usual suspects. Oh, it's that kind of thing. Okay, okay. And in terms of evidence, the investigators found that the, um, quote, the nuts and bolts on the track joints had been loosened and railroad spikes had been removed, close quote, so, causing the deadly derailment. So it was on purpose? Oh, yes. This is, again, an incident uh, or um, a case of very obvious um, sabotage. Was this also after a round of firings? I mean, in a sense, I I don't know that this one happened so close behind another one uh, necessarily. I didn't read that, but obviously that's the context in which this was was occurring as well. 
So in all, 10 Japanese National Railroad Union members and 10 Toshiba Union members were indicted by the police or by the prosecutors. And the in order to extract confessions from them, obviously, the police, you know, employed their usual tactics like we were just talking about. And initially, all 20 were found guilty, and five of them were sentenced to death. Oh, my God. After a second round of trials, four of the death penalties uh, stood. Many Japanese, including the novelist Kazuo Hirotsu, were not convinced. And this, this guy, Kazuo Hirotsu, um, starts a campaign to uncover what's really going on here, right? He, you know, with, again, he, he knew that something w- did not add up in terms of what the police were saying was going on here. And he and others, you know, sort of almost the way that, you know, now you hear about people go on Twitter, right, and they'll say like, hey, you know, this and this, like, who is this person in this picture? And then oh, they'll yeah. just, you know, crowdsource it. Yeah. This was crowdsourcing, but in like... Without the internet. The late 40s, early 50s, <laughs> yeah. right? Just a, a good reminder that these sorts of like social um, uh, projects have always existed. It's a, yeah. a natural human instinct, which is awesome. That the internet, if anything, just makes better, um, unless of course it's something terrible and sinister, which also happens. Anyway, um, <laughs> Reddit, <laughs> you, many things. Um, many things. <clears throat> yes, yes. So he, uh, Kurotsu, and others exposed the iniqui- iniquities and inadequacies. Uh, that's my clever phrasing that I wrote down of oh. the police investigation. You're welcome. You're welcome. Iniquities? Iniquities. So in other Iniquities. words. Iniquities. They. Inequalities? They found that the police were corrupt, that they were doing things like suppressing um, exculpatory evidence, which exculpatory? they're not, not supposed to do. Exculpatory being a word, of course, you know, obviously, uh, <laughs> which means yeah. uh, that it, it, it tends to show that you're innocent, you know. Like any non-lawyer would know. Yep. I'm not a lawyer, n- nor would I be, because uh, I'm not smart enough. No, I don't. Know. Anyway, <laughs> he and others did this thing, and uh, they they uh, eventually, in 1961, got all of t- the 20 defendants acquitted. Oh, wow. By the Sendai High Court. Two years later, it was finalized by the Supreme Court of Japan. So it went up to the highest, highest court in the land, and they said... It's no, <laughs> there's no evidence here. Like these people are not guilty <laughs> and acquitted yeah. all 20. Now, of course, they had been in prison, you know, for whatever, 12 years at that point. But that's how these things often occur. And these incidents were, you know, definitely a, a sign of the times, you know, like we've talked about in terms of the post-war context, um, how Japan, you know, the, the, there was this, you know, strong anti-communist sentiment that was playing out. Um, that all of these people were sort of um, caught up in, right? In a sense, the 20, you know, people who were put on trial here or put in jail, you know, un- unjustly are also victims in this story. Yes. And, um, you know, um, that's because of a, you know, sort, sort of a, an unwillingness on the part of the police to just accept that they didn't know who it was. Yeah, so, so they just wanted to get in there and get, blame somebody right. and appease themselves and appease the public and have a peace of mind, I guess. 
Which I but, can understand. But, yes, but... but it's wrong. Yes. <laughs> and it doesn't help us to find the criminals. <laughs> Sorry. This is this, this, uh, probably very obvious, but I, I just feel like it's... It happens it's a, all the time. Again, yes, it's a thing that happens not only in 1940s Japan, but also, like, now in the United States and, like, a lot of other places throughout time. <laughs> uh, the, the, there are just these certain... I don't know, it must be just something fundamentally human, but certain fundamental uh, uh, issues that occur in the justice system that uh, just seem to be endemic, right, to, to people. Yeah. You know, we, we have to know, right? There's this burning need within people to know the, the solution, the answer to the question. But a lot of times you just don't know. And we have to be better at that, you know? We have to accept that. That's why we like mystery. Yes, exactly. That's why we're team mystery. You get to speculate. Reckless speculation. So 60 years (laughs) after, and this is what I was mentioning before, (laughs) these tragic incidents in 2009, about 1,200 people um, according to the Japanese uh, Japan Press Weekly, rather rallied against the government of Japan, who they broadly held responsible for the Matsukawa incident, and um, so that, that sort of you know tells you the, the resonance of, of these things, you know, still six decades later, and those marching included um, reportedly some of the former defendants themselves. Six of them were living yeah. at that time. And, you know, their supporters, their family, their friends, etc. In the decades since these three big mysteries, you know, they've um, been the subject of endless debate, books, movies, even a couple of mangas. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And um, they just remain very, very mysterious. Like I said, it, it just... Um, where did you find Where did you find this? I found this, I believe, on my favorite Wikipedia page, Unsolved killings or unsolved deaths. I always forget which one. If you look up either one of those, you'll get to the same Wikipedia page. Is there a lot? There are quite a few, yes. And uh, it's just fodder for great mysteries. Um, so it's it's really good. Okay, so my sources are Matthew Hernan at Tokyo Weekend, or like I said, that's where I got a lot of my info from. Um, Wikipedia. Ayo! Shimayama Incident, Matsukawa Derailment, and Mitaka Incident pages, and an article in Japan Press Weekly titled National Rally Marking Matsukawa Incident's 60th Anniversary from October 18th, 19th, 2009. So yeah, that's my mystery for the week. Yay! Okay, okay. it's my turn? Yes. Excited to hear what you've got. I, everybody should be excited, because this is one... Hell of a story uh-huh. that I discovered because me and my mom like to watch true crime stuff when I go right. home. My mom and I like to go to horror movies together. Yes, Your yes. mom and you like to watch true crime together. That's awesome. And so she just DVRs like all of this, all of these things, and I get to pick mm-hmm, and choose. And mm-hmm. She's seen them all, but yeah. Sure. So I found one on Oxygen uh-huh. called The Method of a Serial Killer. Okay. Um, I'm just going to start. Cool. Go. So let's talk about the, let's first talk about the killing of Samantha Koenig. So this happened in Anchorage, Alaska, February 1st, 2012. So 
in Alaska, they had these, um, these like cute little drive up coffee stands. They're pretty hmm. small, but they're popular. Oh, I've never heard of that. Um, they're all over the place. Hmm. So Samantha Koenig worked at one of these and she worked the night shift. And at that time she was the only person she was closing. So she was the only barista in the shop. Mm. Um, at closing time. Yeah. It was closing time. Only person there. So usually her boyfriend of, of about nine and a half months usually picks her up, uh, take her home. But that night when he goes to pick her up after work, he finds that she's not there. So he waits, he looks for her, but eventually he goes home, uh, to her father. He goes to her house Talks to his talks to her father. Says, "Hey, have you heard from Samantha?" Soon he gets a text from her phone, saying, "Quote: I'm spending a couple days with friends. Let my dad know." End quote. So immediately he's like, "What? Like that doesn't make any sense. This right. is not her." He just knows immediately. Um, it's out of the ordinary. It's not something she would do. That's so creepy. The next day, when she still doesn't turn up, the dad calls the police to report his only daughter missing. So what they do is the police contact uh, the owner of the store and they find video footage. Mm. So it's very scary. So it's of inside the little shop. And so basically like a car pulls up to the kiosk window at around eight o'clock. And on the video, you see Sam making a drink for him. And then um, you can see her when she goes back to the window, her body language totally changes she looks tense and she's scared. She turns off the lights and then an individual comes in, jumps through the window um, and she goes along with him like, like because she just thinks he's going to rob the place. But he like takes her and forces her away from the shop and they disappear. Oh, my God. So James Koenig, the father... He sees this. He starts raising hell. So they put posters up all over the place. There's search parties. T-shirts are made. Pins. There's a vigil. People donated money. There's a reward. I think the reward was something like $4,000 or something like that. Um, A few days later, the police find more video footage taken from a business across the street. So their cameras were out. And it's um, of the, the parking lot. And it shows her and an individual walking to a white pickup truck. I think it was a Chevy. I could be wrong, but it was from 1999 to 2007. And they, and basically there's several thousand of these kinds of trucks throughout Alaska. So that doesn't really narrow it down for them. So what they end up doing is contacting the FBI. The FBI has more manpower. They have profilers, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So the case is handed over to, Jolene Godin, who is a badass, she's badass, straight up badass. She becomes it just lead makes investigator. Makes me want to watch that um, that video of Miley Cyrus singing Jolene. Jolene. That's like what I think Jolene. of immediately Jolene. when you say that name. <laughs> but yeah, she, I just adore her. So she, you know, comes in immediately starts asking questions. She's like, "Is this someone that knows her, or is this a stranger?" That's the question here. Mm-hmm. So. The case because grows people, cold. of course, most often are assaulted by someone they et cetera, know, by someone that they know. Yes. Exactly. So be wary of your friends. Keep your friends and close, put your enemies closer. Yes. So two and a half weeks go by. Nothing. Wow. Two and a half weeks after the abduction, the boyfriend gets a text from her phone again, and it says, "Quote: 
Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? End quote. So police go to Connor's Lake Park, which is a few miles away, and they find a so they there's like a, a bulletin board with like events and like a map of the trail and stuff like that. On the bulletin board they find a Ziploc bag thumb like thumbtack to the to the board and it has a picture of Samantha and it has a ransom note in it. So in the photo, she's bound and she's taped at the her mouth is taped. And so the police take the photo to the father for an ID and he's like, yeah, that's, that's my daughter. But he notes that her hair is in a braid and she never wore her hair like that, which is Mm. weird. So the ransom demands $30,000 be placed in her bank account. So what they do is they deposit the ransom and then they wait. So police worked out a deal with the bank where the police and the FBI would be notified immediately if her debit card was used and then Mm. they would dispatch people out to that ATM. So sure enough, a few days later, there's an ATM withdrawal. um, And every time they, there's three total within Anchorage. Every time they dispatch people out there, they're too late. Mm. They're always a few minutes behind. Sounds like a movie. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So March 7th, this is a little less than a month after the abduction now. So another ATM withdrawal happens. But this time, all the way in Wilcox, Arizona, which is about 3,800 miles, like, northeast. Southeast? Southeast, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Pretty sure 3,800 miles northeast of Alaska is fucking... Like, Greenland. Like the middle of the ocean or Greenland or something, yeah. <laughs> southeast. Wilcox, Arizona, 3,800 miles away. So, then there's another withdrawal in Lordsburg, New Mexico. Then on March 10th, three days later, there's another withdrawal from, from Humble, Texas. Then Shepherd, Texas. So he's moving. Sure. Money was always withdrawn by someone with a hood and a mask. They could never, they never got any footage mm. of his face. But they do determine that he's driving a white Ford Focus and it's traveling eastbound. So they put out an APB all over the place for sure. this, this car. One day, Texas Highway Patrol. Burger nine nine. Uh, can I put out an APB on a yeah? Uh, White Ford Focus. White Ford Focus. Uh, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand seven. Mm, over. Abby, uh, this is a high profile case. Missing girl. <laughs> I say missing girl from Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> amber alert. Amber alert. <laughs> we got one of those the we other day. We got an amber alert the other day. It was yeah, sad. That was weird. That's always sad. That's scary. Yeah. So one day, <laughs> I'm like doing funny voices. <laughs> One day, Texas Highway Patrol sees the Ford Focus. He's like, oh, shit, a white Ford Focus. Yeah. And he pu- that's exactly what he says uh, verbatim. Nice. So he pulls over, pulls it over. At, he, like, waits for it to make some kind of traffic infraction. It does. So he pulls it over. The police officer is given an Alaska driver's license. Oh, so shit. they're like this. They're like, oh, shit, this is him. Everybody get race him. So... They searched the car, and they found clothing that matched the description of the person using the ATMs, and they find a gun, they find Samantha's cell phone, and they find her debit card. Oh, fuck. Israel Keys, 34, is arrested. Now, if you've ever heard of Israel Keys... (laughs) I've never heard of Israel Keys. Okay, so he has replaced Richard Ramirez as my favorite serial killer. Sure. And I tend to judge my favorite serial killer based on how much I, I hate them. Right. The one you love to hate. And I hate this man. Yeah. I hate this man so much. 
oh, he's so fascinating, but I just, I hate him, I hate him. This is a very emotional episode for me, okay? Just watching this, this documentary just fucking gives me the chills because they, the FBI videotaped audio, all of it, all, Ooh. all, all of it. They have all of it. And it's, yeah. ter- this man is terrifying. I've watched TV shows before where they talk to like cold-blooded killers who are just What's like, it called on um, Netflix? I'm not a killer. That one. Is that one, what it's called? Uh, called? Oh, that uh, one's weird. No, I am a killer. I am a killer. Was, the that, very first episode, one. even. I was like, thinking of Locked Up, and the, there was there's a couple of other programs. Yeah. But you, those ones in which they're like, it's my duty on earth to kill oh every human God. being. And like, oh, Jesus Christ. This guy. Oh, there are people like this. This guy's scary because he's so casual. Sure. Nonchalant, right? And he's this is a game to him, right? And he's the leader. Oh god, his moral center is not Just non-existent. Not yeah. So he's a total stranger. Okay, the family has no idea. Wow, no fucking clue who this guy Which is. Which is not what I was thinking. Yeah. So they ID. They go back. They take him back to Alaska. They uh-huh. take him to his house. They ID his truck from the video surveillance. They it's a match. Um. So in the first meeting with him, he seems like a normal, clean cut ugly ass, needs a fucking haircut, white dude. Uh, he doesn't open up and he doesn't say anything. A few hours later, prosecutors get a call and from uh, his lawyer. He's like, okay, he's going he's gonna to open up. He's going to tell you what happened. Israel agrees to a full confession if, if he gets a cigar, an Americano, and a peanut butter Snickers bar. So this is when he starts to talk. The FBI has never released the full audio tapes because his descriptions are so shocking and so graphic. So you know it's the real deal. So he starts by talking about the shed in his driveway. That's where he put Samantha there. He tied her up, uh, puts tape on her, on her mouth. He gets drunk, he smokes cigars, and he turns up the music. So his girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter in the house... Don't know what's going on. Oh my god! And what was the, what, what, there was like a serial killer who had like a wife and kids the whole time. A he lot would, of them did. But there was like one in particular, and he would like keep them alive, like in his garage. I, I don't remember which one it was. And he would go on. So Sorry. it's very weird. It's scary. So he keeps her. He sexually assaults her all night. Keeps her there all night. And his family had no had no fucking clue what was going on. They had no idea. So while she's in the shed, he returns to the coffee stand. He grabs her phone, her debit card. He withdraws money from an ATM, and then he returns to the shed. In the morning, he kills her by strangling her and stabbing her. Says to the police, quote, you've got your monster, end quote. Oh, my God. You see why I'm like, it makes my blood boil, yeah. this guy. But obviously that's not the end of the story. No. So... Throughout the confession, the FBI is really weirded out by his behavior and mm-hmm. his demeanor and his emotions. Mm-hmm. Or lack non- of emotions. Or lack thereof. He was nonchalant. He was really casual. He never showed any remorse. All he cared about was his freaking Americanos, cigars, and his Snickers bar. He acted like he was the smartest guy in the room. And so they're like, you know... This guy has definitely done this before. So here's a little bit of recording of what he he tells um, investigators. There is no one from the FBI that I have ever 
knows me or who has ever known me who knows anything about me really they're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything i tell you because i'm two different people basically and the only person who knows about kind of things i'm telling you is me so he's like i'm two different people and they ask him okay how long have how long do you think you've been two different people long time 14 years that's what he tells them so they're like okay maybe this guy's full of bullshit or maybe he's a serial killer or maybe he's a fucking serial killer so they're like hey direct us to her body and we'll give you another americano on a circus bar the morning after the kidnapping this so he continues to talk the morning after the kidnapping he rolls her body up goes on a vacation with his girlfriend and his daughter to to New Orleans on a fucking cruise. And he comes back two and a half weeks later. And at that point, because it's Alaska and it's cold, and he's, she's outside in a shed, her body's almost frozen. He puts makeup on her to make her looks, look more alive. And then he braids her hair because that's <gasps> the way he braids his daughter's hair. Oh, my fucking God. And then he takes a picture of you at her, and that's what he uses in the ransom note. So when they got the ransom note, she was already She was already dead. She had been dead. That's why weeks. the text came two and a half weeks later because he like went on vacation. Wow. So he dismembers her body and dumps it in the deepest part of what's called Matanuska Lake. He went ice fishing to cover it up. He like literally went ice fishing, but was also dropping a body sure. into the deepest part of the lake. Right. Um the conversation between the investigator and Israel says, did you catch any fish? And he says, yeah. I'm like, what did you do with them? And he goes, I took them home and I ate them. Just as he's just casually throwing a body into the, into the water. Right. So now we know that this guy is a real life steaming pile of horseshit. The FBI sends out their deep water dive team and they actually send in like, I thought this was kind of cool. They sent in like an underwater robot. Sure, to like yeah. capture footage mm-hmm. and they confirmed that there was something down there so mm-hmm. so they sent in like specialized like deep water wow. cold like de- this is like middle of winter too this is this is mid february they must have been in like legit like they underwater had like suits. underwater wetsuits yeah. and like or dry suits it, it was crazy yeah um but these professional like dive teams and they they find her and they confirmed wow. that it was her that's crazy so the question here is are there more victims? Sure. And he hints that there are more victims, but mm. he's hesitant. Not unlike uh, Mr. Smalls or whatever, the su- supposed 90 right. killer, serial killer. Right. And they know. linked him, they recently linked him to another one that he didn't even convince, confess to, but his DNA showed up. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. There's definitely a lot more. So. As may be the case here, I suppose. Yes. So. He only has so many cards to play, all right? Mm-hmm. So they make a deal. Only so many more Americanos and fucking, fucking snicker bars. Snickers you can get, yeah. So he's like, fucking I yeah. want an execution date. I want this whole thing wrapped up and over with as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Which we've also seen before with, with killers, yeah. So there's no death penalty in the state of Alaska, mm. but federally, you know, sure. there is a death penalty. Right, right, right. So... But generally, That's murderers are thinking. tried on the state level. Exactly. He's, yeah. he's, he doesn't really... He's a little naive in that in that case. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking, he's like, this is where I want it to go. So they're like, okay, if you want that, you got to tell us more stuff. Otherwise, no one's going to take you seriously at all. 
So in addition to a speedy execution, he also wants anonymity. So this asshole talks about how he doesn't want his daughter to grow up and like type his name in the internet and see stuff that he's done. Like, well, maybe you should have thought that for you know killed somebody. Exactly, dick. So he wants to control all the details and this and that and the other thing. Wants to control what the media knows. He doesn't want them to know anything. And he quote, "It would be really fun to have all this stuff come out, but I'm not trying to single handedly give my mom a heart attack." So, end quote. This is a major bargaining chip that the investigators have, and they use it to their advantage, and they do quite a good job. So they agree. They're like, this is all anonymous. Okay, we will keep your name out of the media. They're like, deal. So then he starts to open up. Now, I don't want to give, like, him too much time in the spotlight because the story isn't about him. It's about his victims. Right. Um, But... If you want to really know more about him, I suggest you go ahead and watch the full documentary. It's on Oxygen, and it's called The Method of a Serial Killer. Which I totally agree. Like, as we talk about these stories, obviously, you know, the victims, they're people. Like, they uh, deserve to, like, you know, as doesn't often happen, right, be the the focus of the story. On the other hand, as we all all, often also talk about, you know, if we want to stop these kind of things, right, criminologically, we have to understand the killer. Exactly. And therefore we actually have to, in a sense, hyper-focus on that person to to deeply understand what was their motivation, what was their point of view, in order to better, you know, catch these people, stop these people. And Israel Keyes is incredibly fascinating. Mm -hmm. He's definitely one of the most fascinating serial killers I've seen. And there's more and you'll find out why, what makes him unique. Mm. But here's a quick rundown. Okay. So he was isolated, homeschooled, classic. He, he grew up in a non-Orthodox group in eastern Washington called The Ark. Hmm. And they are on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of racist organizations. Ah. They have a them versus us mentality, sure. right? And he grew up in, he was marinated as a child with mm. these with these teachings. Mm-hmm. He had violent urges at a very young age. And he tells a story about how him and his friend were hanging out in the woods and he, like, finds a cat, and he kills it. I'm not going to say how. But basically, he kills it, he laughs, he turns around, his friend's thrown up. And after that, he didn't, he spent most of his time alone, after he realized, well, this isn't fun to you. Sure. So he was like, I'm done. Right. He started stealing weapons, he had a whole cache of guns. Uh, He got kicked out of the house when he announced that he was an atheist, so he was on his own. Our girl Jolene Godin convinces him to talk more about his victims. So he tells of his very first assault. The, the very first time he planned it out, like made up a, made up a place, planned it out, and was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kidnap somebody, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rape them, and I'm gonna kill them. This is the first time he had it all planned out. This is what he talks about. Happened in 1997 in Oregon. He kidnapped a girl who had lost her way on a hiking trail, like the, the wounded deer in the herd, type of mentality, the mm-hmm. easiest target. Right. Which is also often the uh, a focus of serial killers. Um, yes. You know, I mean, that's certainly the way that, uh, you know, somebody like Ted Bundy or... Right, know, um, right. You know, would have thought or, you know, Son of Sam, you know, many of the serial killers. So this girl was, was smart. She knew that he was going to kill her. And mm-hmm. so she starts to get inside his head. She mm-hmm. starts being nice to him. 
She starts telling him how handsome he was and how he doesn't have to do this and how she might have dated him and that she's, he's a really good-looking guy and that this and the other thing. And she never fought him. She was peaceful with him. And he loses his nerve and he lets her go. Um, after that, he beats himself up about it. He feels so much regret that uh, he feels like he lost some kind of oper- this great opportunity. And he vows to never let anyone go ever again. So after this story, the FBI knows that there has to be more bodies out there and they still want more, but he's still hesitant. Like he still wants his execution date. They convince him again that they still need more info in order for that to happen. So he's like, okay, I'll give you two bodies and a name. Uh, I'm going to need a map of Vermont, an Americano, a cigar, and a Snickers bar. So note that Vermont is 4,000 miles away this guy got around. Anchorage. This guy definitely got around, and that's why he didn't get caught. It's like that small so guy. Exactly. So let's talk about the killing of Bill and Lorraine Courier. So they were a quiet couple, couple living in Essex, Vermont. Bill worked at the University of Vermont as a caretaker for animals, and Lorraine also worked at the university at the medical center. June 9th, 2011, they failed to show up for work. Co-workers contact the police. The Bill and Lorraine aren't the type of people to just, you know, buzz off, just go off, leave mm-hmm. somewhere without telling anybody. They searched the house. Their window was smashed, their 38 caliber was missing, and their phone line was cut. Their car was found a few miles away. There were no viable suspects. No one had any info. The case grows cold. Until eight months later, this asshole sitting four miles away in an interrogation room confesses. So Israel starts to explain starts to explain what happened. He planned all of this out. He picks a house. He stakes it out. He chose it because of how they had their backyard set up, and it was very easy access. There was easy access in, easy access out. There were no kids, there mm. were no dogs, and there were only two people, an older couple living there. So it's definitely part of his MO. Is, uh, he's not a great opportunist. Right. But he plans it out very specifically. Right. So this is when he starts talking about the kill kits. So Israel has caches of gear that he stashed away. Jolene notes that the thing, these things would sit for years, just waiting to be used. He had gloves, weapons, rope, money, duct tape, shovels, Drano, lie, st- stuff to use to capture, kill, and hide somebody. He had these places, he said he had up to 12 of them stashed all over the country. So he, this part they show during the interview, he, he starts laughing and jokes that everyone loves a buried treasure, right? Yeah, like, fuck you. Right. This way, it's it's smart. This way, when he travels, he doesn't have to, he has no evidence on him. Right. He doesn't have to carry any guns, no weapons, no rope, no anything. So he led the FBI to a kill kit near Essex, Essex Vermont, that had sat dormant for about two years. And they talk about, the profilers in the documentary talk about how this is really weird for serial killers. This is atypical. Like, he's patient, Mm -hmm. and he can delay gratification. Right. So after planning out to kill this couple, he talks about how he cuts the phone line in case they had alarms. And he actually sits and, like, in their bushes and waits outside for, like, three hours for, for it to get dark, and he just waits for the right time. So everybody, he thinks everybody's asleep. 
He takes a fan out of a window of the garage to gain access. He uses a crowbar that he found in the garage to break open the window. And he talks about how he was like within in the bed. Once he got in the house, he was in the bedroom within five or six seconds. And so this was a straight up blitz attack, like surprise while they were sleeping. So as he's talking about this, he, he does a lot of ch- like casual chuckles and, and laughs. And he's and he says, yeah, they were shocked. People never expect this stuff to happen to them. No shit. So he's like, he loves this shit, all right? Yeah, no wonder no one wanted to hang out with this dude when he was a fucking kid. Exactly. So he immediately ties them up. He puts them in their own car. He drives them to an abandoned, rundown farmhouse that he had stoked out earlier. So this farmhouse. He takes Bill, the husband, downstairs, ties him up. While that happens... Uh, he thinks he mu- he's like, I must have taken too long with Bill because Lorraine gets out of the car, gets out of her restraints and tries to run. But he tackles her and he ties her back up. Quote, she was feisty, like fighting the whole time. End quote. And he's fucking enjoying this shit. So this ordeal lasts all night. He sexually assaults Lorraine before strangling her to death. And then he shoots Bill to death. So he tells the FBI that the bodies are in trash bags in the basement of their home of the courier home. But by this time, the home has been demolished and they never find the bodies. What? Investigators they didn't search the house. That's what I'm saying. The right? investigators search they go to the landfill. Uh-huh. They search the landfill which is 13,000 cubic yards, uh-huh. which is 10 tons of trash. Oh they search God. it for 12 weeks, they find uh-huh. nothing, no avail. So to this day they don't the bodies have never been found. However, Maybe they he was know lying. he wasn't lying because oh. they went to like the there's like a picture of like what was left mm-hmm. and there was like uh you could see like where the basement was cuz it was mm-hmm. like underground or whatever sure. and they had cadaver dogs sniffing and they found mm. a scent but they never actually so there was something okay. there long enough to for that scent to be there but they never actually found anything. Mm. Okay. Which is very weird. So the victims' families, um, they're interviewed during this, and they talk about how to this day, when they see, like, a bag or a shoe or something on the side of the road or in a ditch, they're, they're like, they think and they, like, always wonder, is that Bill or is that Lorraine? And the stepsister talks about how it, it's, like, a feeling that never goes away. Right. So this shit's fucked up. Yeah, I've heard that about many victims, you know, or victims' families that... 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, the 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 pain of it is still raw. The, yeah. The, a smell, a sight, you know, can immediately bring you back to that point in time and that emotion. It's, I think, a, a testament to the the bonds that we forge as humans, right? That we're, we're such a, a social species that um, if a... a, a a bond like that is, you know, desecrated, it never goes away. Yeah. Literally never goes away. Yeah. So, again, the FBI, they're pretty sure there's more victims. Sure. So Israel starts to talk more. He talks about how he would drive, he would, like, get rental cars and drive just thousands of miles across the country. He, his victims were random. He leaves no clues, no Mm. evidence. His radius was basically scattered all over the country. So he wants the death penalty, right? And as we know that the death penalty is not a quick process. No. 
Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't really know that he's naive of that. So he starts to talk about his first kill. He talks about his first, he indicates that his first kill was in mid 2001 and that he moved to Nea Bay, Washington to start a family with his girlfriend. A few months after his first murder, he says he killed two more people. So he's throughout this whole, this whole interview process, he gives us shit, these things in like bits and pieces and Mm -hmm. it's not chronological and it's vague. So he says he killed two more people. Most likely, the FBI deduced that it was most likely a couple and that he kills the man first and then the woman second. Um, During this time, he also becomes a father to a baby girl, but he's also still out there killing people. He was capable of living a normal, responsible life. He was a carpenter. Uh, He tells investigators that he never targeted children once after after he had a like a kid uh he had a tight timeline he was never in a situation where he had to explain where he was for days on end he was either seeing old friends or visiting family or something or working on a job so he drops hints like i said he drops hints of two more victims this would be his fourth and fifth victims but like i said he never goes any through anything really chronologically he he talks about lake crescent in washington and he casually mes- mentions how it's five to 700 feet deep and how no one has ever gotten to the bottom of it. And he s- says there's uh, a body in there, but he's vague about the details. So the FBI is still bargaining, right? They're confident mm-hmm. they can get more out of him. But then the trust is broken. There is a leak to the Vermont press. And soon his name and his details are out there in the public. They're like, he knows oh. he killed Samantha Koenig. So the police didn't. Tell no. Them. Oh. No, this was a leak. Oh. So now the media knows that he killed Samantha Koenig in right. Alaska and that he killed Bill and Lorraine Courier in Vermont. So even though he's in jail, he still has access to local TV and stuff. But before he finds out on his own, the FBI had to go in and like tell him, like mm-hmm. do some damage ac- right. damage control. Mitigation. So at this point they're they're back at square one. They lost all their bargaining chips. So at this point, the investigators are done being nice. All right. The whole time, this whole time they've been playing along. This interrogation goes on for months. And at this point, and he doesn't actually talk about Lorraine and Bill Courier until April, which is two months after he killed Samantha um, and was taken into custody. So they, they've had it. At one point, they, they start pushing him. They ask how many there are. And he says, less than a dozen. As time goes on... Should be fewer than a dozen. I think that I think he says less than a dozen. He needs to also learn his grammar. Most people don't. He's murdering the English language. Most people don't Along with follow fewer than a dozen those people. types of rules. Well, most people are serial killers, so... Most people are... Ser- are you a serial killer? Of the English language. Nice save. <laughs> nice save. I had it all along. Okay, go. So as time goes on, he stops smoking cigars... He becomes quieter. He shuts down because now he can't, he can't, his anonymity is gone. And that was one of the biggest things for him. Um, he talks more about the death penalty and how he wants an, inve- he wants an execution date. So by this time, they're six months in, investigators have determined that he has killed about eight victims, five possibly being in Washington state. After killing five people, his girlfriend begins struggling with alcohol and he leaves her and then he marries someone else. And that's when he moves to Anchorage, Alaska. Like, so this is when he started living a more normal life as a handyman and as a carpenter. Mm-hmm. He talks about traveling to the East Coast in 2009, and he casually talks about how he may have killed someone over there. 
they got a hold of his computer and they found the name Deborah Feldman. So the FBI suspects that Deborah went missing on April 9th in New Jersey. And then two days later, a bank was robbed. Israel also admits to robbing a that bank and that he was into he was into bank robberies. <laughs> quote, I did get a I did get quite a bit of money from robbing banks. End Just quote. Casually into bank it's, robbing. It's seriously sick. It's not a big deal. He said it was similar to the rush you would get in kidnapping, but it was not at the same scale. So Deborah Feldman is described as having a high risk lifestyle and she was estranged from her family. She had addiction is- issues. She was probably on the streets for a while. People just thought she ran away. Uh, her body has never been uh, dis- recovered, discovered. Mm. So when they showed him the photo of Deborah, his demeanor totally changed. They showed him a number of missing people, but when they showed him her, his demeanor changed. And he said he didn't know her and he didn't know where she was. And he doesn't want to talk about her. I don't want to talk about her. They're like, well, we found her name on your computer. And he's like, there's lots of names on that computer. I don't want to talk about it's on the computer. And he really never does. He never opens up about mm-hmm. it. 2009, 2011 is when the FBI determines that he probably started committing crimes more often. So he's unable to travel as much anymore. Uh, and his um, his behavior and his MO kind of starts to change. Okay. He used to kill people who, quote, wouldn't be missed, you know. Mm-hmm. But he starts to kind of veer from that. By the time he gets to Samantha, his behavior is totally erratic. And is, and he's obvious, like he's using her debit card. Right. He's, that's a mistake he never would have made before. During this time, he also talks about how he went to his sister's wedding and caused a scene. So his behavior overall was changing. He became more erratic. It was harder for him to to not kill. Right. He talks about how usually after he killed people, he was like, okay, and he could go on. But this time with Samantha, it was different. He was He did one kill and he was amped up. He was like ready to go. Quote, if you want, I can give you arson in Texas. I burned a house down. It was a mess. It was like a hoarder house, end quote. Investigators note that there's a lot of miles on his car and no one knows where he was. And they believe that there's another victim in Texas, but he never is specific. He's vague. You know, he's never talks about it. So by the fall of 2012, the FBI has interviewed Keys about 25 times in the span of eight months. So like I said, once the security, his security is breached, like his name leaks to the press, he's more withdrawn. Mm -hmm. The FBI gets more desperate. He agrees to reveal where his kill kits are. Investigators use drones to recover some of them. After he agrees to this, a few days later, the lead investigator, Jolene Godin, gets a call that Israel Keyes has committed suicide. I could see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. When I was watching the documentary, I was like, what? Like I mean, he kept saying, when are you going to kill me? When am I going to die? Hey, I want to die. When, when is it going to happen? I'm and tired then his of this. Like, deal was over, and he was like, right. fuck this. Yeah. So he slit his wrist using a disposable razor that was, like, embedded into a pencil, so he, like, made it and killed himself. The correction, the correction officers never say where he got the razor. He leaves a suicide note, and in the documentary they read it, but it's, like, grossly poetic, and he doesn't really say anything that's worthwhile. Wouldn't imagine he would employ too much, you know, self-awareness in his last moments, probably This guy is a fucking coward. So Israel's secrets die People like this are the true cowards of the world. I mean, 
his secrets died with him. Mm-hmm. The only body they ever found was of Samantha Koenig, and that was because he led them straight to her. Mm-hmm. They never found the bodies of Bill and Lorraine Courier. They don't know for sure if he killed Deborah Feldman, but he was in the right place at the right time, but there's no body again, and there's no direct evidence. The FBI can comfortably say that he has probably 11 victims, but they know very little, and they really don't have much to go on. It's amazing how much they found out to have so little to show for it, right? You have a, a, crazy. a person who's obviously a serial killer. I mean, yeah. he's dead to rights, no pun intended, on one count of murder at least. But he has, here's the thing though, he he only like gives them the information that he wants sure. and the rest is spread out all over the country. He's been everywhere. Who fucking knows where this guy has been? And that's the thing, you know, it's it's just so difficult to solve random murders. Yes. And and you know, most people are killed like we said at the at the beginning of your story by someone that they know. Usually very well and a lot of times intimately. Yeah. But yeah, when it's just a total random kill, it's it's pretty tough. So that is the story. Wow. Of Samantha Koenig how her death was solved and how the eight-month mm. cold case of Bill and Lorraine Courier was, sure. was solved. So this, my whole, I basically got everything from, again, a documentary on Oxygen called The Method of a Serial Killer. It's, it's, it's like on YouTube. It's just on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly suggest it. It's really good. Sure. That's where that clip was from before that we played. Yes, read. that's where that's from. Right, right. So that's the story wow. of... Yeah. Crazy. Crazy shit. Do you see why I like... Mm-hmm. He's so incredibly fascinating, but I fucking hate him. He's just so... It's like his, like, casualness. Right. And his cockiness. And he's like, I'm the king of the world in this little room. And like, oh my God, it makes... It makes I'm mixing what a puke! It's, it's like he thinks that killing people is cool. Like, it makes him oh cool. Oh my God. Or something. Like, he's the fucking Fonz because he's a murderer. Oh, it's like, terrible. no, you're just... A terrible douche who likes hurting people. And I'm be honest. There's nothing cool about that. I was I was really surprised when he ended up killing himself. Really? You thought he was too egotistical? I thought he was yeah, I thought he would go he wouldn't he would see till yeah. the end. I thought he I thought he loved it and I got the impression that he loved bragging. But in a and way this, then, the isn't that the final manipulation? He got yeah, to set right. the terms of his own demise. That's what he always wanted. And it is, it's, it is not a, you know, it's sort of an atypical pathology, right? Or whatever you want to say. It, it, it's not totally common, but I do seem to recall other killers, you know, for whom this was the case, right? Yeah. Like one of the ones on I Am A Killer, who just like, you know, I want to die. And I decided I want to die, so that's how it's going to be. And he also was talking about you know, how, anyway, like, Death Row has better facilities and better benefits than like exactly. the regular corrections facility does. And I was like a lot of times these kind of people are also like super manipulative, but also have like weird logic that they follow, you know? <laughs> like it's so they're they're bizarre. manipulating everything, but it's not necessarily toward the end that you would think. Because like, yeah, obviously they're like you know I don't I mean obviously also people with mental health issues tend to be the victims of crimes, not the perpetrators of crimes, right? We should yes. always say that. Yes. Always keep that in mind. However, clearly these people have 
issues, mental issues, chemically imbalanced issues, Yo, guy emotional is, issues, what have you. This guy's nuts. And yeah, it, it seems that uh, this guy had them in spades. And then I'm as and as I'm watching this documentary, mm-hmm. and then at the end, I'm like, "Oh my god, it's a mystery." <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk mystery. about it. Because that was such a good a fucking story. And like, oh my God. Because who knows how many there may be out there. Exactly. You know, first, yeah. And even for mm-hmm. the ones that they're... Right. Even the ones that are seemingly pretty, you know, that solid. He, that he, they don't have bodies. They don't right. have anything. You know, those that couple, like you were saying, their family doesn't even know. Maybe they were never murdered. Who knows? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but I mean... They probably were, but, you know. Anyway, thanks for listening to to the pod. Yes, but I think it's time for Weird, weird Shit in, in the, the news. news. Weird, weird Shit in, in the, the news. news. Are you ready? Are you ready? I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Uh, I should say, while we're getting ours up, we're doing a special episode. I'm not going to say what it is, but we're doing a very special episode. Yeah, so let's for talk next, about this. Next week. Next week is... We're not going to reveal what it is, though. It's going to be a mystery. Well, yeah, but we're going to talk about how it's our one year. Yes, that it's is not a mystery. It's our 52nd episode. Exactly. It's one year since we, me and Mario were like, hey, like, it's Christmas. Your aunt is here. She has a great story to tell. <laughs> right. Let's talk about, let's actually do the podcast exactly. that we've been talking about for the past year. Exactly. Let's just talk about it. It was let's, two years ago that we, like, started talking about yeah, this. Yeah. I was like, we're, we were just like, let's just do it. And yeah. it's been a year, and we're chugging along. We're doing okay. We're having a lot of fun. Yeah. We love our listeners. We love you guys. And we love that you're here for us. And, and Chloe, you were talking earlier about, you know, kind of the, you know, Instagram community of, like, you know, podcasts, you know, we're, yeah. like, tapping into. And, yeah. You know, uh, I think we uh, definitely want to, you know, that that was part of what we wanted to, right? Become part of the conversation. Become part of the community. Um, you know, we uh, watched and listened to what other people did, you know. Yes. Uh, Henry and Ben and, 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 um, Karen and Georgia, Karen and Georgia, and, uh, you know, all, all the, the great podcasters out there. So anyway, weird shit in the news. So mine is from Reuters. Uh, you, you'll probably, you'll probably saw this. I haven't seen any footage, but I imagine there's probably some pretty great footage of this. So, um, this is kind of a follow-up story. Okay. So no free money in New Jersey police want spilled banknotes back. No free money in New Jersey. Uh, so if you hadn't heard, the police in New Jersey were urgently called out to the Pikeway or whatever um, when a, an armored Brinks truck was spewing cash eh. like it's a fucking movie from the 80s or something out onto the, uh, onto the, the, the road. And people apparently, uh, as they, of course, would do, abandoned their cars in the middle of the fucking highway and ran after the cash, causing a tremendously chaotic scene. And uh, not any um, serious injuries that it mentions. I guess everybody was fine, but it seems pretty dangerous. And, uh, yeah, they said if... You did if you took any money, you know, no judgment. Uh, right. 
fine, no questions asked. They want it back. Bring back the money, please. Um, They do say, quote, we have had several individuals contact ERPD, that's the East Rutherford Police Department, and return money, they said in a tweet. And they also said, we would like to advise people if they have any money connected to this incident to contact ERPD at... 201-438-0165 to make arrangements for its return with no charges filed. (laughs) Totally fine. So if you you happen to have been, you know, one of those lucky people, you know, won the highway lottery, so to speak, um, you also don't want to go to jail. So probably bring the money back. That would be my suggestion. So Well, how do they know it's you? Ah, you got to think that there's, I mean probably footage of a lot of this i mean what what happens nowadays in fucking public or private that's not on fucking video yeah you're probably right and i bet there we're are people- being recorded right now on audio what i know right i bet people were like hey guys i was on highway level whatever <laughs> right. and there was a part- and look how much money i got it was just everywhere man you know you say that but i mean many people have been no i'm not even kidding that's by probably like posting videos of their crimes on fucking social media. Oh like, God. it happens all the fucking time. World's dumbest fucking cyber criminals. Okay, go. All right, so um, this is from USA Today, the busiest fucking website I've ever seen. Do you fucking <laughs> see this shit? USA Today, you have a terrible website. I just want you to know oh you need, need to make it a little bit better, a little bit cleaner, a little bit nicer. Uh, it it uh, fucking sucks. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Okay, so the... Title of the article is UPS Store Offers to Shred Children's Letters to Santa Claus in Viral Tweet. So, oh, in Viral humbug. Tweet. In so Viral this was published Tweet. By William Cummings in USA Today. <laughs> so, basically, the UPS Store put out a tweet that said, quote, If your child addresses a letter to the North Pole, you can leave it with us. We do shredding. <laughs> And so people were like, oh, come on, guys. Come on. Where's your holiday cheer? And they also Are noted, they, like, doing cross-promotion for the Grinch or something? Like, <laughs> what's going on here? It's just, uh, it's just bad. Yeah. Bad that's advertising. Bad social media presence. Bad that, social media That social presence. media manager needs a little, I was talking to. Um... But it was it was it was obviously taken down. But sure. they also noted how like it says most of the posts of the company's account show retweets in the single digits. The post offering to shred children's letters to Santa sparked nearly five thousand retweets. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, their numbers definitely okay. went up. Well, any uh, any publicity, you know, publicity is good publicity. Is good. Yeah. I guess they're employing that strategy. But hey, that's my it, weird it, shit it, in the news. It worked for Judas Iscariot, right? Judah, Judah, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Um. Yeah, so I hope y'all are having a good winter time. Um, Simply. Oh, I was going to do a correction. Heaven. I forgot. Uh, e- yeah, Eid al-Fitr is a, a you know uh, Islamic holiday. However, it is in like July or something. So that is not around this time. So. Oh, yeah, we were talking about other That was like, like a couple, other of, couple episodes ago. We were like, and I happy said, this and happy that. I was like, uh, yeah. I said one. Samhain, and Samhain is not how that's pro- pronounced, number one. Number two, it's not around Christmas time. It's in, like, October. And I think it's pronounced Sawe. Sawin. Sawin. Sawin, I think. Something like that. Yes. So I apologize. But, you know, next year. Not cool. You know, that's cool. It's fine. It's totally... So, yeah, tune in next week for our one-year special episode. Um, Follow us on Twitter, please. 
Right, right. Please follow us on Twitter. Um, um, all we ask for Christmas is a dollar on Patreon. Patreon.com. Hit us up on Patreon. It's a sad page, but you can help us lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, follow us I'll, on I'll Instagram. Try to add more stuff on there. Follow us on Instagram and we have been hit doing us up a lot on, on Instagram, though. Yes, Thank hit you. us up on uh, Facebook too. Chloe's our social media manager. All the social medias. I'm trying, right. y'all. Cool. But um, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.